Tom Loops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. we got a packed show for you. Uh, Housing Minister Selena Robinson will be in studio here in Kamloops at the end of the show. But first, a real pleasure to welcome the panel this morning, Global BC's Keith Baldry, the Vancouver Suns' Vaughn Palmer, and BC Today's Shannon Waters. Welcome all. Good morning. Good morning, Shane. Uh, listen, we've got a high probability we're going to get some breaking news at about the halfway mark of the show. The B.C. Court of Appeal is going to rule on uh, this reference case filed by the provincial government whether or not the province can restrict shipments of diluted bitumen through the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project. Uh, Keith, just a quick look ahead. Uh, anything you're expecting out of that ruling today? Well, most legal observers think that the B.C. government doesn't have a prayer in this court case, but having said that, the B.C. Court of Appeal certainly has a reputation for taking a unique stance on on some decisions that are ultimately reversed by the Supreme Court of Canada, the most recent example being the teachers' dispute, where the Court of Appeal uh, ruled against the BCTF on the government arbitrarily stripping contract language out of its uh, contract language out of the contract, and the Supreme Court of Canada, I think, what took like 10 minutes to reverse the Court of Appeal. So um, today's ruling is not the final word on this thing. Uh, if, if BC wins this, that's certainly a huge setback for the Trans Mountain Pipeline project. But in terms of killing it, it that will be up to the Supreme Court of Canada. If, if BC wins today, that's another another hiccup, another another uh, delay in the, in the timeline for the pipeline. If BC loses today, I assume BC will go to the Supreme Court of Canada. But if BC loses, that takes a, a lot of wind out of BC sales. Yeah, no, absolutely. Can we assume if BC wins, it still goes to the Supreme Court of Canada, Vaughn? Does the other side pull the trigger on that as well, or no? Yeah, that's uh, it's pretty much automatic, actually. The, the province went to the federal government on this and said, look, we'd like to do a reference case, and you, Ottawa, have the power to send this issue directly to the Supreme Court of Canada. Will you do that? And the feds said no, because they didn't think the province had a legal leg to stand on. They thought it was a delaying action, so they wouldn't go for it. So that that's why the province had to use its only other option, go to the Court of Appeal. But um, I think whatever happens, uh, the two sides will be seeking, uh, the loser will be seeking to take this to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, the court, if the province loses, the high court may dispose of the case fairly quickly and say, yeah, the Court of Appeal got it right, and uh, the province didn't have a legal leg to stand on. The other thing, of course, important is, remember, John Horgan was going to use every tool in the toolbox. Well, this is pretty much the last tool in the toolbox yeah. that he's got to do anything to stop the delivery of bitumen through the province. So if he loses today, we are also, as uh, as I say, I think we'll be saying, well, that's pretty much it for tools in the toolbox. Now, I could stand to be corrected on this, but I believe the, uh, the, the case revolved around just the expansion and not diluted bitumen flowing through Correct. the existing line. So to you, Shannon, I mean, if we have a lay of the land on the existing pipeline, I have a hard time believing the court's going to say, well, this new section, but not the old, is going to have to apply under whatever ruling we have. I, I, I assume that uh, the existing rules may weigh heavily in here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that would make sense. I had to go back and refresh my memory on this case earlier this week when we learned the decision was coming down because there, it's a three-part question that's been asked. Like, this isn't a legal challenge that 
we see all that often or certainly like I had never seen it before. So they're, they're asking three questions about whether the province has jurisdiction essentially to kind of interfere with or override what is understood as federal jurisdiction under the auspices of protecting BC's environment, which is what Premier Horgan and Environment Minister George Heyman have kind of insisted that they're trying to do here. They're not, they say they're not trying to specifically block the Trans Mountain Pipeline um, either when it comes to the existing line or, or the upcoming expansion project, the stalled expansion project, they say that what they are concerned about is potential impacts on BC's environment and that since the environment is under provincial jurisdiction, they should be able to restrict certain forms of heavy oil coming through into the province. Right. Okay, so uh, that ruling is expected about bottom of the hour. Uh, we'll we'll uh, hopefully, if, it, if the timing works out, we'll be able to break it down a little as it happens. But uh, let's move along here. Uh, an interesting development in the uh, continuing saga of soaring gas prices. The BC Utility Commission been tasked by the province uh, to launch an investigation into this. Okay, fair enough. However, Keith, uh, the, <laughs> the province has outlawed any look at provincial actions or taxes in this role, uh, in their role in this particular story. Uh, fair fair play here or no? Well, you know, uh, it, it's hard to see how you can get a, a firm analysis of, of why gas prices are what they are when you exempt two major factors of what makes up the gas price. So the BC, BC taxes uh, account for about 34, 35 cents a liter in Metro Vancouver, because that's where there's a big TransLink tax there uh, that pays for transit. So you start separating out a chunk of, uh, of money that, that determines how much you pay for gas really doesn't, I don't think, get the job done here. But nevertheless, it's going to be interesting for the Utilities Commission to delve deep into uh, the you know the vagueness of, of why our gas costs what it is and come up with some potential at least some explanatory uh, information rather than uh, any uh, action that actually reduces the price of gas. I think we're going to get a glimpse or a pretty good read on why gas costs what it does in, in British Columbia and why it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But in terms of reducing prices, I don't think this is what this exercise is all about. This is, a, this is more of a fact-finding mission, uh, compiling some analysis of why you know gas companies charge what they charge. And it'll be interesting. The most interesting thing that will flow from this, and I'm not sure they're going to get there, but the Utilities Commission does have the power under the Administrative Tribunals Act to compel people to give testimony if they hold a public hearing. And it'll be interesting if they try to get oil industry people on the witness stand and actually provide some uh, some testimony. And they can also be compelled to provide documents uh, that determine their own decision-making when it comes to the price of gas. So I think it's got a chance to be really interesting, but a chance of reducing prices, I don't give it that much hope. All right. Vaughn, do you think that there's going to be major revelations that we start hauling oil and gas execs on the stand in this BCUC thing. They're not exactly the most interviewable people on the world. <laughs> no, but look the way the terms of reference are crafted here. The uh, commission is directed basically to call them, put them on the stand, and accuse them of gouging. Now, the provincial government in its own explanation for high gas prices tabled in court in Alberta didn't even mention gouging as a factor, and they've deliberately excluded any decisions, actions, regulations, policies of the provincial government as a possible explanation for high gas prices. So I think the exercise is a charade. I think it is a delaying action as well because the commission gets to study the matter all summer, which is the peak of gas prices, and give us answers in the fall. And I'm actually surprised that an institution that is supposedly proud of its independence 
the BC Utilities Commission agreed to even participate in what is clearly a political put-up job by a premier trying to avoid responsibility or any explanation for high gas prices. Now, the one thing that jumped out at me in the uh, terms of reference, and I'll quote it here, uh, BCC's task to, quote, uh, look into the mechanisms the province could use to moderate price fluctuations and increases. Now, John Morgan, for two summers in a row, has hinted at gas price relief. Uh, he hasn't done anything. That sentence leads me to believe he either uh, doesn't have any mechanisms in front of him and is looking for some, or he has some and he isn't exactly sure if he has the jurisdiction to use them. Shannon? I think might be a little more of the latter and also the fact like the premier has previously said that he while in opposition had looked at you know the issue of introducing some kind of regulation to sort of cap gas prices or at least try to get around sort of the fluctuations in them and had said that in looking at what's in place in other jurisdictions at that point in time he didn't feel that it was a very effective mechanism um so i was actually surprised to see that included in the terms of reference given that the premier had seemed quite dismissive of that as a solution i also think the optics on you know, let's, he could, because Horgan has said what we need from the BCUC is to get everybody on the same page about gas prices. The liberals are saying one thing, we contend that the issues they're identifying aren't important and have our own theories. We need an independent regulator to look at everything, come up with, you know, a set of facts and get everybody on the same page and then he precludes them from looking at one piece of the puzzle and somehow seems to think that whatever conclusions they come up with are going to be sort of accepted by everybody and bring everybody onto the same page so i think he's really kind of hamstrung the investigation that he has tasked the commission to do and of course at the end of all this whatever we find out is going to come at the end of the summer uh when that's uh, mm -hmm. traditionally high gas prices are plaguing people so uh, we'll see how that plays out uh, we got a lot to talk about in the show uh we're going to take a quick break here on inside politics and radio nl i will continue our conversation on their side with keith vaughn and shannon Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Shannon Waters. Uh, guys, we had some interesting infrastructure news this week. Uh, the Premier has uh, turned his attention to that long gestating Massey Tunnel slash bridge project that the Liberals have grabbed onto and making some pretty good political hay out of. Uh, he's essentially resurrected the idea from Kevin Falcon, the old transportation minister way back in the day, uh, to add a second tunnel alongside this thing. Um, first to you, Vaughn. I mean, this, there's a lot of political stuff going around this thing. But you also have a major choke point in Metro Vancouver that frustrates the, the absolute hell out of motorists. So uh, with what the Premier said this week, is, uh, is this a viable option, or, or what do you think? Well, it's a good example of why it's always uh, wise for news organizations to staff every public appearance by John Horgan, because in the space of a <laughs> one, he completely reversed the government's direction on this. Up to now, up to Thursday morning, the entire NDP plan was to stall this thing as long as possible. They killed the project when they took over government. They needed the borrowing room to uh, get rid of the tolls on the port man and to pay for the Patello replacement. And uh, the plan was 
to spend the next 18 months consulting the public, bringing in a business plan, which would be released in the fall of 2020, almost before the next election, and only then would we know what the NDP's plan for replacing the, the, uh, the, the twin tunnels was going to be, or the single tunnel. And now, as of Thursday, the Premier said, no, 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 we can go ahead, you know, or he's put it on the fast track. So I'm fascinated what his actual plan is. We don't have a business plan, so we can't possibly say whether or not it's cheaper than the, the Christie Clark plan. Um, and it's just fascinating to watch this unfold so quickly because the Premier has, uh, unless we get one of those statements where what the Premier meant to say, uh, he's put this thing on the fast track. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I looked at, uh, there's a 2016 report that looks at a bunch of options, including this one. Uh, it raises some interesting questions. Obviously, a massive cost on this thing. Uh, there's the question of the integrity of the existing tunnel with work nearby. There's impacts not only on traffic, but the big one, I think, which which would be a huge issue, is impacts to the riverbed itself. They have to scoop out a bunch of material, add in more, and that's going to impact fish stocks in a river that's a major highway uh, in its own right for spawning salmon. Shannon? that aspect honestly i find this um the issue sort of a fascinating one because it seems like every time we talk about it there's like a new aspect or there's a new suggestion or we've gone back to an old suggestion um as Vaughn pointed out, like the government just last week had sent out a timeline for what they were going to do with the George Nasty Tunnel and replacement, and there wasn't going to be much happening until at least this coming fall when they were going to release a report regarding some of what they felt the best options were going to be. And then all of a sudden yesterday at an announcement about MRI machines, uh, the premier's like, yep, yeah, this sounds great. We can just twin the tunnel. It'll be fast. It'll be cheaper than, you know, options that we've discussed before, and I think we can get moving really quickly on this. So I think it is going to be very interesting to see whether the premier statements get pulled back and, and whether this is really a major development in the saga of the George Massey Tunnel or just sort of another stop along the road. And Keith, on cost, I have three words for you. Community Benefits Agreement. <laughs> yes, that's already adding cost. That's already adding cost to pretty well every project that this agreement covers, uh, which is, uh, you know, I mean, the, the government freely admits that the community benefits agreements will add cost to infrastructure projects, uh, but they say the payoff for that is more apprentices, more women, more indigenous people working on these projects. So I don't see the government running away from that particular aspect. This whole thing, though, is, uh, I agree with Shannon and Vaughn, this is quite fascinating. So the premier only offered up these comments <coughs> because a cameraman from Global asked him a question. Just what's what's the latest with uh, with uh, the Massey Tunnel? He actually asked it on behalf of Vaughn's son-in-law, Jordan Armstrong, one of our reporters. who just thought, well, we'll do a story on the Massey Tunnel, uh, Massey Tunnel update today, and no idea that the premier would go as far as he did. Mm. In fact, to the point of saying that he's already talked to the federal government and has the federal government's assurance that it will uh, help fund the project because it will no longer be the subject of tolls. The, the, the federal government was not there on the Massey Bridge project, according to Horgan, because there were going to be tolls on that bridge. Now he's saying that uh, not only did the mayor's council reach consensus on, on twinning the tunnel, but the feds are on board for funding. So this is accelerated in, in the space of, like, you know, a couple of days from, 
uh, one of being, let's study the thing, to suddenly, let's fast-track this. We've got the mayors on board. We've got the feds on board. And anytime you've got uh, the municipalities, the province, and the feds on, on side for, a fun, for funding a project, you can be sure that project's going to go ahead because all the players are there for funding. So it's uh, quite extraordinary that we got to this point so quickly. Again, only because a, a cameraman yeah. happened to ask a question. Uh, final word to you on this topic before I try and shoehorn in another one here, Vaughn. But uh, the community benefits agreement, so we're looking at Trans-Canada four-laning here east of Kamloops, an important campaign promise for the NDP. And one of the big first projects out of the gate east of Revelstoke to four-lane has jumped 35% in costs in three months. The ministry says, hey, listen, this is materials labor and complexity of the work required. Locals aren't buying it. They're saying this is community benefits agreement. Community benefit agreements are only going to add 7% to the cost. It's, this one is, you're right, it's 35%. And here's something really interesting about the federal role. Ottawa is pretty shrewd when it comes to dealing with BC on this. They capped the federal contribution. It is the Trans-Canada Highway. They will help to pay for it. But they capped the federal contribution at 15 million bucks. So the entire overrun is the responsibility of the province, and that's $22 million. That's one contract on one project on the Trans-Canada. I'm not so sure Ottawa is all in on the Massey Tunnel replacement, and if they are, they would be very wise to cap it before John Horgan starts crafting the contract to benefit the trade unions that support the NDP. All right. Uh, a few minutes left in this segment. I want to jam this in here. The Prime Minister was in Vancouver this week, uh, rolling out millions of dollars for Coast Guard upgrades, which I thought was an interesting political move, not only on the economic investment of it all, but it does raise the specter of the cuts made by the Harper government that really helped the Liberals in the 2015 election. If you remember, every single Conservative member of Parliament that had some coastline in their riding in Metro Vancouver uh, got swept out in that election. Uh, Keith, what did you think of the Prime Minister's move? Well, I think he's, he's earnestly trying to change the channel from all the scandals that have dogged his uh, government, so he's dusted off an old one. Uh, shipbuilding contracts were, you know, Harper promised them, didn't deliver them. Uh, now he's, he, uh, Trudeau now is uh, promising to build 16 ships at uh, CSAN shipyards in North Vancouver, but that's over a period of well more than a decade. Uh, so this is very much a long-term uh, funding announcement, but nevertheless, he got pretty good media coverage. I think he got pretty positive uh, stuff here, and I think you're going to see Trudeau out in BC uh, between now and October with a lot more funding promises that extend well beyond you know the near future, uh, and again try to get people to focus on his uh, economic policies, his climate change policies, and not focus so much on the issues that have bedeviled him the last few months, like SNC Lavalin or the Norman affair or whatever. He needs to get people talking and thinking about those shiny photo ops where he hands out billions of dollars, and I think he. He acquitted, I think he, again, achieved what he wanted to do with that announcement this week. Uh, Shannon, uh, just to reference back to that, I mean, the Jody Wilson-Raybould fiasco uh, did cost him some, some sort of uh, bruising in Metro Vancouver. Does he have a job ahead of him to shore up support there, the Prime Minister? I think that's a reasonable interpretation. It certainly seems like, you know, as Keith pointed out, they're handing out money um, for infrastructure for, for this shipbuilding contract. There is some that is going to be going to Halifax. A couple of the new vessels that are being built are going out there, but the bulk of them are supposed to be built here in BC at the Vancouver shipyards, um, which, you know, is something that 
is going to be appreciated here. We've also been talking about, you know, how to revitalize the province's shipbuilding industry previously with the provincial government looking at whether or not it's feasible to start building ferries here as well. So, I mean, people like hearing that, you know, the economy is being supported, local industry, stuff like that, and the feds at this point, you know, seem to be banging that drum as, as they can and trying to get people excited about voting liberal in the fall, I guess. Now, Vaughn, there was an interesting... breaking news. B.C. government lost the case. Court of Appeal ruled against the Oregon government. Oh, there we go. Oh, there we go. Wow. So automatically the Supreme Court then, Vaughn? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, the, the, as I said, if the uh, if the Court of Appeal bought Ottawa's arguments, uh, I'd be surprised if the Supreme Court of Canada would go the other way. My guess is it might not be an appeal that lasts much longer than the uh, the B.C. teachers case uh, where uh, the province lost in, in 10 minutes. I don't know if Keith's still on the line. What's your thought? I'm not surprised. Um, again, so I assume David Eby will come out later today with a, a statement. I'm sure that they're going to appeal this to the Supreme Court of Canada. As Vaughn says, this is the only tool they've got in a very small toolbox, and they have to maximize its use. So they just can't fold their tents, I think, today and, and say, oh, well, we did what we did. We did. But I think they'll appeal this. And I think the Supreme Court may weigh in rather quickly and may even choose to say, no, we're not going to hear this appeal if it's a, if it's a blanket judgment from the Court of Appeal. I haven't seen the, the split on a view in terms of the of the judges? No, I just see the uh, very brief uh, Tanya Fletcher, CBC, has uh, posted the decision, or, or her uh, in reading of the decision. Yeah, there we go. All right, some breaking news and inside politics. Uh, I think, Keith, you probably have to go jump on BC1 now. Uh, no, I'm still good to go no, with you. Still good to go. All right. So, well, we'll take a quick break to the bottom of the hour, and we'll continue on with the panel right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Computer Center. This is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Global BC's Keith Baldry, the Vancouver Sons of Vaughn Palmer, and BC Today's Shannon Waters. I just want to pick up where we left off before the break because we've got some new information now. Uh, is a unanimous court ruling at the BC Court of Appeal uh, basically ruling against the province, uh, saying it cannot introduce legislation that would have effectively killed the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, and in fact, and I'll just read off some of the court paperwork here. This one line caught my eye. This amendment thus lies beyond provincial jurisdiction. That seems pretty definitive to me, Shannon. Yeah, and I think the fact that it is a unanimous decision you know, uh, speaks to that as well. Um, and I'm just, I'm looking here as well. It says the court was asked, as I mentioned earlier, to explore sort of three questions around BC's jurisdiction on this issue. But it looked at the first question and said, no, you guys do not have the power to do this. It would be unconstitutional. And so didn't even get to the other questions. So I would agree. I think that's a pretty definitive answer right there. And the other one that caught my eye, the judges find that the legislation would have meant the province was usurping the role of the National Energy Board uh, in approving pipeline contracts, which is unconstitutional. Uh, Keith? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty definitive and decisive judgment, which uh, may mean the Supreme Court of Canada doesn't even uh, choose to hear an appeal of this if uh, David Eby, the Attorney General, chooses to file an appeal on this, as I expect he will. Uh, it's pretty clear-cut, and again, most legal observers, in fact, I never found 
one lawyer or legal observer who thought BC really had a chance with this argument. It was most people thought it was pretty clear cut. The province has no jurisdiction here. This is a totally federal matter. Um, and uh, again, it was. It, I think it was a hail mary from the Horgan government, an acknowledgement it didn't. Which they acknowledged almost their first day of office. They had no real legal tools to stop the pipeline. They came up with this somewhat obscure argument uh, over regu- regulating what flows through a pipeline, which uh, I think in the in the scheme of things was a rather weak argument. And the, the appellate justices obviously came to that conclusion uh, as well when they heard this case that uh, BC had no legal. Uh, basis to stand on here. Vaughn, final word to you on this. I mean, would uh, would it be wise for the province to look at this thing now and, and for David Eby and the Premier John Horgan to say, okay, uh, we're just, we're going we're well, to drop this thing? They have wasted millions of dollars on weak arguments to try to stop this project. And remember, it was BC's threat of obstructionism that led Kinder Morgan to put the project on hold and led the federal government to have to buy the pipeline. So uh, their behavior all along has been pandered to environmentalists by pretending the province could do something to stop this, losing at every turn. The wise move now, yes, would be to admit and give it up, uh, but, you know, uh, they have a bottomless pit of money, can spend as much as they want on lawyers, and uh, they may decide to fight on and this exercise in futility. It's what they've been doing now almost two years, even though they were told on the day, first day they came in that they had very few options to do anything about a project that had been approved by the federal government to transport oil interprovincially to federally owned port. Final topic, and it's one that uh, that I'm a little bit fascinated by, and it's the argument uh, made by uh, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum that he wants to punt the Surrey RCMP, he wants to move Surrey to a municipal police force. Uh, a long gestating report has now been uh, handed over to Mike Farnworth, uh, this province's top cop. Uh, Keith, what do you think happens now? I think this goes nowhere fast because I think uh, for all of Doug McCallum's bluster here, he has no evidence that the people of Surrey want this. He keeps saying he has a mandate. He was elected by a very small percentage of voters in Surrey, and many people probably arguing they voted for him because they, they wanted SkyTrain uh, instead of LRT. Uh, again, it's going to be a tough sell to Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, and I know that he's going to listen to the six NDP MLAs from Surrey a lot more than he's going to listen to Doug McCallum. If, this, if the Surrey uh, MLAs say, no, uh, our people don't want uh, this move, then it's just it's dead in the water. In fact, the B.C. Liberals, I don't see any evidence that the B.C. Liberal MLAs in Surrey want an independent police force. So McCallum needs more political allies than just himself to push this thing through. This is a huge step. And because Surrey is so vitally important electorally in determining who forms government in this province, uh, the NDP is not going to do anything that upsets the people of Surrey to, on something like this. They're going to they're going to weigh public opinion very carefully here. And I think public opinion will be that uh, people don't want to go in an independent way with a police force because it could raise, literally raise their property taxes. Yeah, and speaking of that, Shannon, I mean, we had this, uh, they're doing these public consultations. It caught my eye looking at some of the reporters doing social media there in Surrey that the first one, largely attended by an, uh, an older crowd, were uh, by and large not happy with this move and were essentially crapping all over any efforts to punt the RCMP. Yes, it did not sound like this public consultation yesterday went particularly well from uh, the mayor's perspective. I saw as well reporters sort of uh, tweeting from this event and it looked like sort of the top question by attendees was, 
how much is this going to cost? And the second sort of most popular query that was being brought up was, when can we see this report that you've put together on the issue? Because it hasn't, hadn't been publicly released. And so people are being consulted about an issue that they don't really have much information on other than that, you know, their mayor would like to, to transition to an RCMP police force. So I, I would tend to agree with Keith here, and I don't think if this is the way that the public consultation is starting, that the mayor is doing a very good job of building sort of that public support for an issue that he obviously feels very strongly about, but it's sort of anyone's guess, I think, at this point in time, whether his constituents share, um, share those concerns and that desire. So last question to you, Vaughn, then does Mike Farnworth uh, quash the idea, the concept, allow uh, Doug McCallum an opening to cast the province as a bad guy, or does he release the report publicly and sort of let public opinion, and I assume the report's going to paint a, a pretty awful picture report, on cost. Yeah, release the report, uh, which might kill it. If the report said this was a great idea with no downside and it will actually save money in Surrey, we would have the report. My guess is the reason he hasn't shared it with anybody at these public meetings is because they're not going to like what the bottom line cost is or the other downsides of this move. So my guess is uh, for Farmworth, he doesn't have to stop it. All he has to do is say, put the damn report out and see what the public reaction is to how much more they're going to have to pay for this Surrey police force. There we go. Guys, always appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, Shane, take care. There we go. Thanks, Shane. There's Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Shannon Waters. Quick break on Inside Politics. On the other side, Housing Minister Selena Robinson in studio. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Real pleasure to be joined in studio this morning by BC's Housing and Municipal Affairs Minister, Selena Robinson. Good morning, Selena. How are you? I'm great, Shane. It's great to see you. It's good to see you, too. Uh, listen, you're in town. Uh, you've been in town a bunch of times, all announced various housing initiatives. This one's interesting, um, focused on Indigenous peoples, specifically uh, Indigenous youth and, and elders. Um, I'm kind of, I want to get into the First Nations thing because... Uh, I found it interesting that your government was was the first, I believe, in the country to kind of wade into housing on First Nations land, which is normally the domain of the federal government. You guys made that choice. So uh, from a housing and, and perspective, and I assume homelessness and some of the spinoff stuff, um, why the focus on First Nations? How important? Why is that so important to you guys? Well, we're we're not just the first. I think we're still the only uh, uh -huh, provincial yeah. government that has that has stepped into what has traditionally has been a, a federal a jurisdiction. Um, and the challenge for us, you know, as a government dealing with um, significant um, affordability issues yeah. and a homelessness problem that really has only grown in the last dozen or so years, um, is that we, we need to make sure that people have homes where their communities are. And so uh, one of the things that we've noticed is that Indigenous people are absolutely overrepresented in our homeless population. Uh, th that is year after year after year, that's what we're seeing. So we made the decision as a, as, a, as a government that we needed to make sure that people who are Indigenous can stay in their communities. And one of the reasons they leave their communities is because they don't have adequate housing. Mm. And so uh, we made the decision uh, that we would uh, work with an Indigenous communities, work with First Nations, uh, work with them so that they can deliver the kind of housing that their communities need. 
uh, this housing project that you announced this week here in Kamloops, uh, specifically youth and elders. What's the need there? Well, what we, we certainly heard uh, out of uh, LMO has done some uh, work long time, uh, working, delivering child and family services uh, in the Métis community. And they too were seeing that uh, people were age, young people were aging out of care yeah. and falling into homelessness again. Yeah. And so they uh, recognized that the value of, of, of co-housing, youth aging out of care with elders, right, who have time, who have patience, who have um, wisdom um, to share with young people, help them transition into adulting, as I like to call it. <laughs> um, it's, 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 it can be challenging for some, yeah. but having the opportunity to do that uh, with those kinds of supports. And we, we forget sometimes, I think, that elders um, have um, talents and skills and wisdom that can really make a difference in a young person's life, especially a young person that has been in care for most of their right. life. And it grounds them in their culture. It grounds them in uh, in their past as well as in their future. And uh, this is a, a co-housing model that I'm going to be watching very closely because there's something about it that just um, is captivating and I think will create some opportunities. Is this forward. the first co-housing model of its kind? Or? There's a couple that, okay. that, that do exist, but this one I, is, is particularly interesting because it's come up from um, LMO that has done the child and welfare services. Right. And so they're very well grounded um, and have sort of all the supports. And uh, this is one that I, I, I know will make a difference in so many lives. How are you guys doing on, on addressing youth homelessness overall? I know here in Kamloops, we've had uh, two first of their kind homeless youth counts, which were, I think, eye-opening, uh, staggering stories of uh, young kids, you know, uh, trading sex for a roof over their head or money, that kind of thing. Uh, just just awful stuff. And I've always been shocked from when I was in Vancouver and even to hear about the disproportionate um, availability of beds and space and housing for youth specifically. Is that something you guys are moving on or working, now, especially now that you got the data from Kamloops? Yeah, the, the, data, from, the data is very, very helpful. And uh, I want to give a shout out to Catherine McParland and her work away home. They've, you know, they've done an outstanding job. Um, and it is absolutely a priority area for us. Part of what we did, uh, we, we conducted the very first uh, provincial homeless count that had never been done before. So we never really knew. We had bits and pieces of data, but right. now we have some comprehensive data. We also um, have started uh, out of Shane Simpson, uh, my colleague from um, uh, the Minister for um, Social, Social Development. Development and Poverty Reduction. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, he's he's uh, been tasked with um, doing the homelessness action plan. So yeah. I've got the housing resources, but we, we recognize that we can continue to, um, and we need to continue to address homelessness uh, once people are homeless. We absolutely need to get them off the streets, out of the parks, but we also need to identify, so how is it that people are falling into homelessness? Because mm. you, you can't, we can't keep up. We have to figure out how to prevent homelessness. Yeah. And we've recognized that transition points are a real challenge. So when youth age out of care, uh, when people leave a prison system, for example, mm. when um, um, when even sometimes when people get out of hospital, you know, if they've lost their housing because you know they were in low income housing right. um, and they were in hospital for two months and they've lost their housing, so those are those are some key areas that I know my colleague is looking at, and certainly around the youth component. How do we we want to keep youth from becoming homeless? I mean, that's that's the key here. Yeah. It's not uh, it's not once someone is homeless, it's much harder 
to move them back and help them move into um, a stable environment. We'd rather keep people stable. So uh, another example, we're funding a rent bank, a provincial rent bank, because sometimes yeah. it's just a few hundred dollars that people are short for a month or two, and let's keep them housed. So that that's work that he's undertaking, and um, and I'm and I'm proud that we're taking a very holistic approach to the issue of homelessness, and particularly youth homeless. Good. Um, I last when you were here last year, I talked to you about some frustrations around modular housing. Uh, there was supposed to be stuff set up for last winter. Uh, there wasn't. There were some delays there, which necessitated the need for the Mission Flats facility that Ask Wellness uh, jumped on and did, I think, a pretty good job in putting that together. Um, are we back on track there? Is the modular housing here, you know, still a go or what's your Oh yeah, every, everything's a go. We have, um, we've opened up about 1,400 across the province of these homes. Yeah. They're making differences right across the province. In fact, in Smithers this year, we closed the, uh, the only homeless shelter m- March 31st uh, because everybody who has been identified as homeless has a home. Excellent. And so this is sort of where we'd like to get to. But again, it's going to take uh, addressing the, those who are currently homeless as well as preventing homelessness. We're going to have to continue to work on both of those fronts. Has there been, I mean, I know here in Kamloops, there was a hiccup on actually getting it built. I have, I, and then the goal is always laudable, but has there been some hiccups here and there? Well, there, there, there are hiccups. I mean, yeah. sometimes we have to, you know, we... we uh, the way, the way we've been working with local governments is they provide land. Sometimes the land needs a little bit more work than we anticipate. Sure. In this particular instance, um, it w- we needed an elevator and yeah. that wasn't anticipated. And so that meant we had to you know, re- rejig the, the, um, the modular components. And so that does take time. Uh, but we also need to keep in mind when you have a traditional stick build, it takes two to four years to build a traditional project. And with modular, we can have something sort of up and, up and running uh, once the land is ready within sort of three to six months. Mm. So it really depends on, um, uh, it, and it's always sort of the land is is a key, key issue, making sure that it, it works for us properly. Um, and when we change a design, of course, then we have to go and build the component. Is there, I, mean, I don't know if you know or not, just throw it out and you can tell me, but uh, the Mission Flats, the temporary facility out there, I mean, is, it, is there a future for it? Is it coming down, do you know? or what, is it? I haven't no, okay. been updated about what the plan is. We've been really focusing on um, delivering on the, you know the full range of housing yeah. uh, that we've been you know the four different funds that we have uh, making sure that people have housing that they can afford and that includes the missing metal I mean we certainly have a lot of of stuff in the works um, on our uh, um, subsidized housing component but we're also working to make sure that the missing middle have housing that they can afford as well good uh, strata stuff you're dealing with uh, there was a recommendation from the rental task force. Uh, that Spencer Chandra Herbert did that was kicked a little bit down the road, and that's dealing with uh, rental restrictions in some strata units. I know I own a place down in New Westminster. There's only a certain amount of units that are allowed to rent there. What are we going to do with this? How is that going to resolve itself? Well, we committed that we would address all of the recommendations. There were 25 in total, um, and this was one of them, was to not not allow restrictions uh, on rental. Um, and so that work, we need to do some more consultation. So when Spencer went out to, to do the consultation um, with, with Ron Ray and with Adam, they went out and they talked to renters, they talked to landlords, uh, but we, they didn't consult specifically with the Condominium Owners Association. And so there's still some work that we need to do. We want to understand, you know, if we were to, you know, move in that direction, what would the implications be? What are the, some of the concerns? So we need to make sure that we do a, a more, more fulsome consultation, and that's the work that we're going to be undertaking. 
Is there a chance you won't move in that direction? It sounds like you will. You just need to cover off your bases. I, I just need to understand more. So I'm not I'm not committing one way or the other. Yeah. And I know that that might be frustrating. <laughs> um, but I think it's really important before we make any decision that we understand all the implications. And I have we haven't had a chance to do that. So I want to make sure that we hear yeah. from um, people like you who own who own who say yes, I want to be able to rent it out or. Oh no, I don't. We haven't. We haven't. That work hasn't been done. So I want to yeah. make sure I understand all the implications before we there's make an, a decision. There's an overlap issue there. I know with uh, the speculation tax, um, there was an exemption. I believe it's a two-year exemption. If you own a second home, you want to rent it out, but your strata says, "Yeah, no, you can't do that." Uh, is that more ammunition into kind of okay? We need to we need to lift that cap in your mind or no? Well, th- and that's a conversation I'm currently having right now with the Minister of Finance because I, I want to understand exactly how much time we need in yeah. order to do a proper consultation and what those implications are. And so that work we're very well aware of that overlap, and I'm and I'm in conversation with the Minister of Finance to make some determination about you know how much more time do we need and and what would it look like. On the municipal affairs side, uh, UBCM is negotiating with the province on uh, revenue sharing for for marijuana. I know that's mostly the Ministry of Finance domain, but uh, with your responsibilities, I know that uh, we're running a story this morning with uh, Cabinet Mayor Ken Christian, who says, listen, time is running out. We've incurred these costs, municipalities have incurred these costs, and when they approach their their beginning of their budget process, probably late fall of this year, I mean, somebody's going to have to pay the piper, right? And the hope was to have the marijuana revenue thing sorted out. Those monies would then negate the the costs that have incurred, and local property owners wouldn't have to eat any of it. Um, is there a concern on your side that that we need to get something done here sooner rather than later, or is is some red flags going up for you, or no? Well, I'm confident that the continued conversation um, will will come up with a with a plan that that we committed as a government that we would work with the uh, the local governments to make that determination and remember this is still a brand new program and there's still lots of costs being incurred on all sides yeah and so making sure that we understand what are the costs is going to take some time and i know that the minister of finance is committed to working with local governments um, and making sure that we all understand sort of what are the costs on all sides because certainly the province has has costs with the rollout in terms of an education program and and it's continuing to roll out so we don't even know what the actual revenues Mm -hmm. are because we are continuing to yeah. roll it out. And so that that's where we, we all need to make sure that, again, we understand what are we talking about, uh, what what is the revenue going to be. Um, and so that work will continue. And I and I have confidence that the that the Minister of Finance will uh, will stay in conversation with the UBCM, making sure that we we stay focused on on uh, coming up with a with a, a resolution that will work for everybody. You were, you're a former councillor. I mean, you're aware of the budgetary processes that cities go through. Is, I mean, I, in an ideal world, does this resolve itself before mayor and council have to say to, to the local taxpayers, I'm sorry, we've tried, we've got nothing yet. Uh, now we're going to have to pass these costs on to you. I, I'm not exactly sure in terms of what how the, how the timing will work. I mean, in that you know, they're, I know that they're in regular conversation. Yeah. Um, but we do we do this all the time, where you know money passes through and it comes in at different times and it you know gets covered off in different ways. So we do that with infrastructure financing. We do that with all kinds of things. Um, so I, I know that what's really important is that everybody stays at the table and works diligently to come up with a solution that works for everybody. Okay. Now a translink question. No, I'm joking. I'm totally joking. You know. <laughs> This is what happens when you have so many files. I just keep moving all over the place. That's the benefit of being an interview in Kamloops. I don't care about TransLink. Well, I do care about (laughs) TransLink because it's great and it moves people and we're going to keep investing in uh, in transit. 
Uh, Selena, always a pleasure. Thanks for making some time, as you do every time you come to Kamloops. I really appreciate that. It's always great to see you, Shane. And that was BC's Minister of Housing and Municipal Affairs, also responsible for TransLink, Selena Robinson. And that brings to an end this edition of Inside Politics. We'll see you again in a couple weeks when I get back from holidays. 1230 Merit, 1340 Ashcroft, Cash Creek. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL, 610 AM. Local news now.